Hey guys, and welcome to Finding Faith Podcast. We're here. We did it. Season two. We went through a whole first season uh, that was absolutely amazing. Uh, we went from different types of testimonies, you know, people that were raised from the dead, people that were financially blessed. You know, there was all types of different testimonies in season one, which now leads to season two. This one, I'm, I have been anticipating this interview for quite a while. This is kind of what they call the ace up your sleeve, um, just because of the fact that not only, you know, uh, my guest today, um, this evening, you know, witnessed miracles, had miracles, but I got to live alongside of it, you know, and we get to hear a story that is, it, it will blow your mind today, you know, and, and I'm very excited about it. You know, a lot of people have been asking about this interview, a lot of friends, a lot of family, a lot of uh, church uh, church family, you know, and tonight is the night. I am super excited uh, to have my guest. And not only is she my guest, she is my wife, my partner in life, my best friend, you know, and, and uh, I don't want to take anything from her, from her. So why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, and tell everybody who you are. Uh, so hello, podcast. It's, it's interesting to be on this as an interviewee, you know, because I've done the interviewer part. Um, I am Lorenzo's wife. I have an amazing husband, as you guys all get to see his talent and his passion for sharing things that God's doing in the world and life. And uh, I'm really excited to, uh, real excited, kind of nervous to do this with him just because, you know, uh, <laughs> telling your testimony is never uh, an easy thing because it's can over, oh, sometimes be overwhelming because it's a lot that happens and just the overwhelming things that God can do. It's not overwhelming in a bad way. It's overwhelming in my like, man, look at the power of God right there, you know? Hmm. Well, that's, that's good. Julie, Mrs. Rivera, you know, um, again, we, we are excited to hear your story and, and, you know, this is, this is one that's really gonna, really gonna help a lot of people, I believe, as we hear who you are, how you grew up, challenges you face, the whole bit, you know, and it's, it's gonna be very inspiring because, uh, you know, not only I know it personally with you, but, you know, everybody that knows you really doesn't know the background of a person, you know, until they actually like sit there and there's there's places like this where they, they see it. And this is a great opportunity right now uh, to tell us a little bit about you tonight. So, um, you know, with 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 no further ado, we want to get into your story, Julie where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and give us a little bit of background about you. So I am grew up here in Utah. I'm originally from here. Um, I was born in a very small town of Brigham City. Uh, great town, small town, very much that small town vibe. Um, and moved away from there and lived in an even smaller town for a little longer. And then I moved to Logan, and where I went through high school and middle school, and I did my teenage years. Um, and then after that, I graduated high school, and I got the heck out of Dodge and 
left because I crave something bigger in life. I wanted something more than just small town uh, life. Uh, and that's how I ended up in, uh, in California. So, so let's, let's back up a little bit on that. So growing up in Utah, little tiny town, um, I want to say Mulberry kind of Barney five type of little town. Um, of course, being in Utah, I'm assuming that Mormon, you know, being Mormon was part of your raising, right? Um, so my family, um, like my, a lot of my mom's side, um, and my extended family, they're LDS and they're great people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did that for a little bit, you know, my mom had me blessed in the church and I went to girls camp and things like that, but it just, um, I felt like I didn't fit. I felt like I was a little too, um, out of place. I'm not that stereo. I'm not that, I'm not a, uh, that stereotypical woman that fits in the mold for that kind of uh, ministry. Okay. And so it just wasn't a fit for me. And I knew that at a young age that I didn't want to be there. Um, and so, you know, I, I stopped going to church and church wasn't a thing until in high school um, when my stepmom, who mm. is like a mom to me, she raised me through my high school years. Um, she would send me to church on Sunday and it wasn't really like she would send me and my brother by ourselves. So she would drop us off. Um, I think it's because deep down inside, she knew we needed Jesus. <laughs> um, and so we went and we got really plugged in with a really great youth ministry. Um, it was a um, Presbyterian church. Um, okay. We had a really great um, minister, um, Dave Hedgepeth. He took us on like all kinds of mission trips. And I was like, oh, cool. This was more of a friend thing. Like I didn't have a divine God experience until later on in life. But, you know, God was always present, even if I didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And and he normally is, you know, and, and you know, being, being that out of the box type of person, I'm, I'm assuming during high school, you know, you, you you had your moments, you know what I mean? Because being that type of person, you, you think different, you are different. You you know, I know I was, I was part of the rebellious group, you know, going through high school. I'm, sh- I'm sure you were too. And that was part of the growing up, right? Being out of the box. So I was, I was, me in high school is a lot different than me now. And I wasn't rebellious in, in school for very long. Um, like my freshman year and that was about it. Mm. Um, as far as it comes to being in school and life, I was, oh man, I spent, I can't tell you how many years I spent grounded because I couldn't stay out of trouble. (laughs) I I can't, uh, literal years where I was just planned on doing nothing because I was grounded and I did it to myself because it was simple rules that were being asked to be followed. And, you know, I was like, no. I don't want to follow your rules. Suck it. And so I landed myself being grounded quite a bit. You told but, me a story. You told me a story one time. And I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt you on that part. But you did tell me a story one time that you ran away to Washington. <laughs> Where did you bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and I'm, and I'm saying this for, for a reason. You know, you ran away to Washington 
Um, you know, it, obviously the small town wasn't having it. You <laughs> went to get out of the state. You know, you ran away to Washington. The police finally contacted you. I'm just going to fast forward the story. Police finally got a hold of your parents. And I think this is where I admire your 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 parents uh, at the time when when they were dealing with you. How did how did how did they deal with you when 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 they finally caught up to you? Oh, my goodness. Um, so I was literally just running away from home. I don't know why. Because uh, now that I look back at it, I had a really great, um, I had a really great childhood. I had a really great life. You know, I had my normal struggles that everybody does. But I ran away from home because I hated it so much. And I don't understand why I hated it so much when I look back. Uh, but I made it through three states. So from Utah to Nevada to California to Oh, more than three. Okay, I don't know how to count either. <laughs> so Utah, <laughs> through Nevada, into California, into Oregon, into Washington. Uh, we got there, and at 15 and 16, we checked out. My friend that I was with called his mother, and they found us, and the police picked us off of a train that we were taking back mm-hmm. to Oregon and pulled us off. Okay. And his dad's friend met us, picked us up and drove um, halfway. So my parents drove halfway into, I want to say it was like Idaho, the the legitimate halfway point to where we were at. This little diner in the middle of nowhere. Like, and I was like, oh my God, what have I done? And that was the <laughs> longest car ride home. The longest car ride. But they did it with so much stern love. I don't know if that makes sense. But, you know, they, they, they just wanted to make sure I was safe. And they brought me home. They drove me all the way home. And, you know... It was the longest, the longest ride. Bless but, I, I don't know that type of love. My mom just flew off yeah. the bat and started beating me up every time she picked me up from the police station. <laughs> oh, you know what? I think my dad, I think my dad would have wanted to beat the life out of me. But, you know, uh, uh, Anita, she talked a lot of sense to him. She's like got the psychology background. She's she's a psychologist. She's a law enforcement officer. She's like, all right, I'll calm down. And she brought it, you know, she handled it really well and, and enforced the love weirdly enough of like, you know, we're, I'm upset. I'm mad. You know, you don't know how good you have it. And I really didn't. And I realized that when I got home, because everything that I came home to was like, my room had been stripped. Like she was so hurt and so mad um, because she loved me so much that she went in my room and she was like looking at all the things that reminded me and just broke everything. <laughs> and I came home to what I, you know, she joked, she go, she joked, she goes, you're going to come home and it's going to, you're going to have what a prisoner has. And, nice. that, and, and she did. All I had was my bed, my dresser and my clothes, like all my CDs were gone, my posters, all those things that, and I was like, She's like, you're going to know what it's like because I don't want you to get in trouble again. And (laughs) now that I work in a jail, 
I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, it does look like a cell. Cause like they can't have their pictures up on the walls. I have to tell them, well, you know, you have to take that down. Like, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, she did love me. Like she was telling me, hey, you know, if you don't get it together, you're going to end up in that life. You know, yeah. I know she didn't want that for me, but she, like, she didn't stop loving me. My dad didn't stop loving me. Mm-hmm. Even though I did all that, like, they still continue to love me. They still continue to enforce that strict love. It's still reinforced. Cause I was like in a rebellious phase where I didn't want to receive love. Right. I was hurt. I was broken. I had a lot going on and I didn't, I didn't want to receive love. I didn't want to be loved. I was okay with not being loved. And I refused it. Like any form of healthy functional love. I was like, no, not having it, mm-hmm. not having it. And she stuck it through. They stuck it through, you know, and they did. I have really good parents, so it's it's kind of I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So mo- moving, moving, you know, moving forward now. You, know, you mentioned you went to California, you know, um, what was you know after after leaving and you went to California. Now now you're living in California. What 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 happens? What 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 goes on with your life there? Are you are you finding who you are? Um, are you experimenting with different things? Like what, what motivated you? I think that's the question. What motivated you to get out of Utah to go to California? So I just, I didn't, I wanted more. I wanted culture. I wanted something more. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted, but I wanted more. And I left, um, on a whim, which turned out to be a lesson learned immediately off the bat. And I, I had originally, like I left and I moved to Vegas and I was in Vegas for two years and um, Vegas really opened my eyes to what the word world really was like. And the things that are out there that, that as a small town girl, you don't, or young boy, even you don't see these things growing up. And so it's like, a culture shock and you're overwhelmed and and you kind of can't believe that people actually do these things that you see on TV or in movies, you know, that are dramatized and you're like, Oh my God. Wow. And then, you know, I left Vegas um, to go to, to LA. um, And I ended up there and, and I wish, you, you know, I was finding myself, I was finding out who I was in the process of, leaving Utah, I was trying to figure out who I was, mm-hmm. who I wanted to be. And um, because I felt like I was such a wallflower through high school, like I felt like I had this little group of friends and this is who I was, but I didn't want a lot of attention. And I always wished that I was prettier or more popular or, you know, I just wasn't comfortable with myself as a human being. And okay. I struggled with that a lot. And when I come in, came to Vegas, I learned about who I could be. And mm-hmm. I started to weed out what I didn't want. And I started to grow as a person. And um, in LA, it really, it's funny because when people ask, well, where did you grow up? I say, well, I'm from Utah, but my real growing up in life, like where you have those growing up moments, you become a grown up. And you have to deal with it happened in LA. It happened in California where I became who I wanted to be. And it was through a lot of trial and error, a lot, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of hurt, a lot of 
um, a lot of dark roads that I had to fight my way through. Mm -hmm. Now, what is a, what is a, I'm going to ask, you know, what, what is a sample of a dark road? Like, um, not to put too much of it out there, but just a quick, like, what, what was, what was the first thing that started leading you down what you call a dark road? So a lot of it became, you know, when I was younger, I, I fought a lot of healthy love. I fought it away. Like mm -hmm. I, I was so programmed to say like that. I knew unhealthy love and um, I wasn't willing to receive a healthy form of love. And so I became this kind of glutton for my own punishment. Like when things were going really good in my life, I had a problem with myself where I wouldn't accept it. And so I would purposely sabotage it, like without realizing what I'm doing, mm -hmm. I would sabotage my life because it was going so well that I didn't know how to comprehend like, okay, this is going great. Why is this going great? This doesn't make sense. And, um, it led me down a path of, you know, I had, I've had, I had two kids at this point. Um, I was so overwhelmed with being a young mother. Um, that I started, you know, and, and other things in life. There was so much in that, that moment right there that, and I were, I, I worked in a restaurant and, you know, I was around them and I let them become my family. I let them become my influence in a sense that, that it wasn't good because a lot of these, these people, if you've ever worked in the restaurant industry, like the movie waiting, so true to point. I know it's like sometimes, uh, it's so super inappropriate that movie but <laughs> you all get together at the end of the day and you drink and right. you talk about the day and you become friends with them and you become you know there's a lot of that weird interactions and mm -hmm. um it started with the drinking it became you know well okay i'm just gonna drink a little bit it's nice it lets the stress off um and the little bit of drinking became a full-blown alcoholism problem. Mm. And with that came, you know, I drew closer to my people at work. And um, at one point, you know, I was in a relationship with the kids' dad. Um, I'd walked away um, from them. I'd walked away from them for my addiction. Okay. And, you know, I had become so consumed in work and the people at work that I was losing what I really wanted. I was losing what deep down inside I really wanted because that sabotage was so overwhelmingly in full blown drive that, that I was like casual drinking went to daily drinking went to full blown alcoholism. And, you know, I find it funny cause I say, Oh no, I was a functional alcoholic, which there's so much hypocrisy in that statement because in the midst of your your addiction, you you may be functional to the outside world that doesn't know you, but what your functional is is actually this just giant camouflage for what's really happening. Just yeah. because you can hold a job or just because you can hold an apartment doesn't make you a functional alcoholic. It makes you, you know, 
good at your addiction. Um, and my addiction spiraled so deep out of control that I did irreparable damage to my relationship with my kids' dad, who mm -hmm. was, was my husband. Um, and I did irreparable damage to my children. Like, it, that was the hard. I didn't see it when I was in it. But when I got out, I started to realize um, what I had been doing the last four years. So it, it, it was a, it was a slippery slope and, you know, um, I was an alcoholic. I smoked a lot of pot. I did, you know, I didn't do a crazy amount of, um, like I never did anything crazy, um, like cocaine or heroin or like that, because I, I like to be calm and, you know, I like things that calm me down. And uh, th those things definitely do not calm you down. They make you, you know, hyper as I'll get at. So, so okay, yeah. now now you've been finding out who you are. You know, there's there's been issues and problems going on in your life. You're finding family outside of family, people to cope with. You know, now let me ask you. You know, during during all of this, when all this is starting to happen, you know. Um, where did you have an encounter or when did, when did, when, you know, you've buried yourself, you're, you're going deep into a hole, right? You know, where, where did Jesus actually come into the picture in your life in this? So that's really an interesting story because, you know, like I said, God, God was with me even before I really knew him. Right. Um, um, and you know, in the early years and then, in the midst of all of this, like, um, after I had my daughter, my daughter and my son are 12 months and six days apart. And I was really, um, I believe suffering from postpartum depression and wasn't treating it. And this, you know, when the alcoholism, when I was just using alcohol to cope, it hadn't become an addiction yet. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the kids, grandmother, uh, Lori's was quite an amazing woman was still trying cause she's a Christian and she was, she, um, she was sending me to mops, which is a program where, you know, mothers of preschoolers where you can go and have fellowship with other mothers while your kids are in daycare. Uh, right. And they provide the daycare for it. And I didn't realize at the time how big of a deal this was like, if this wasn't my first encounter, but this is where like, I didn't realize I was giving my life to God. Hmm. Um, you know, her friend had been investing in me and, you know, mentoring me. And she's like, you know, would you like to accept the Lord into your heart? And I was like, well, yeah, sure. You know, thinking nothing of that statement. Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll say this prayer, you know, not realizing how big of a deal this was. And, you know, I said the Lord's prayer and I accepted the Lord into my heart. And I, she, you know, she was crying and she was like, I'm so happy for you, honey. And I kid you not the church where, um, we were having this place was literally a two, maybe three minute drive from the, her house, from Lena you know, Lori's house. And we get down the hill to the house and I'm greeted at the door by her and she's just tears streaming down her face. Oh honey, I'm so happy for you. You don't know what this means. And I was, I was like excited, but confused because I was like, all I did was say a prayer. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, okay, well, you know, 
And I didn't understand. And I think that's why um, things started to spiral really fast because I started getting really hungry for the things of God and I didn't understand why. But then at the same time, the enemy was fighting so hard against me that he, he, I wasn't equipped enough that he, um, I succumbed to his plans like real fast. And so I said that Lord's prayer and it, it, it took time for like it to finally happen where the Lord took me into the desert, like, like Hosea's wife, you know, mm -hmm. stripped me of my idols, stripped me of everything. And I landed <clears throat> fast forward. I'm in the midst of my addiction. You know, the kids, dad told me, you know, uh, no one can help you now, but Jesus, Jesus, is the only one that can help you. And I said, well, I can do it. You did it um, because he, he faced an addiction struggle as well. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, if I can do it, you can do it. And he goes, yeah, we'll see. Wait, I'll wait and see. I'm not going to believe you until I see it. Okay. And I'm one of those people. If you tell me, and my mom will tell you this from the age that I was like nine, mm -hmm. you tell me I can't do something. I'm going to prove you wrong and I'm going to do it Yeah. because that's just who I am. And you know, he, he basically gave me that, well, I'll see it when I believe it. Okay. So I dropped him off, went to work that night and turned in my two weeks notice to my <laughs> job. And they're like, what are you doing? And I lied to him. I didn't, you know, tell him that I'm, oh, hey, I'm in full blown addiction. I'm going to rehab. No, I looked and I said, well, um, I've been called to do inner city missions, you know, at the Dream Center in Los Angeles. I'm going to go there and it'll probably be a year. And then, you know, well, we'll hold your job for you when you come back. And I'm like, OK. Um, and I two weeks later packed up my car, had a big fight with my roommates because they really didn't expect me to do it. They tried to talk me out of it um, <clears throat> because I was like the party mom. Right. We had parties at my house all the time. I was the party mom. I, you know, we partied together. It was great. And I packed up my stuff and I got down there to Angela's Temple, um, which in case you guys don't know, that's in Echo Park. And Echo Park is not the greatest of all neighborhoods. And I drove around the block two or three times. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this. I was almost ready to chicken out, to be honest with you, but I didn't have anything. I had sabotaged everything. I burned the bridge with my roommates, so there's no way I was going back. And I got there, and um, I checked in, and they're like, okay, well, you know, he's here. You guys need to focus on God. Don't talk to him. Don't look at him. Don't nothing. And then I said, we don't have a bed for you, but we'll let you stay the night, and we're going to figure something out. At that point, I freaked out a little bit, like, you don't have a bed for me? What do you mean? And so they had told me, we'll either find a place for you or you're going to have to come back uh, in like 10 days when we have one of the people graduate. And um, I was like, okay, well, all right. So I stayed the night. I got up and it was weird because everybody got into prayer and they were walking in the halls. And I was like, they're like, you need to get up. And I'm like, okay. They're like, you need to run program. We're doing a program. So what we're going to do is pray and then we're going to go up to breakfast. And mm -hmm. from there, you know, Mike and Vilma will come and get you. So we get in prayer and I was like, I just remember walking the halls and being like, listening to everybody pray. And I'm like, man, they're praying out loud. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, so fast forward, I get through breakfast and they come and tell me, they go, we can't take you. He's, but we have found someone that can take you mm -hmm. and you can do the time over there. 
And then when we have a bed open, you can come back with us and start program. I was like, okay. So took me even further down in the Southeast Los Angeles, um, where I ended up at a Victory Outreach Church, okay. women's recovery home. Um, and my home director was actually like, she intimidated me because she, I'm walking up to this house that's in the back of another house. And I was like, oh my God, what am I, what am I doing here? Like, if something happens to me, I'm never going to be found. Like, I went into that small town girl panic mode because yeah, you know, yeah. it, I'm in the midst of Norwalk, California. I'm like half a block away from the Norwalk Square, mm -hmm. uh, town square. And, you know, that's like the heart right there. And I was like, okay. And, and I opened, you know, she greeted me at the door and she was this big, tall, beautiful Amazonian uh, Samoan. I want to say she's Samoan okay um and big beautiful woman and i was like oh my god what am i gonna do and i entered the home and god like i don't know what it was um but god started really doing something huge in my life right there and that's that's where it, it that's where it began and okay. As I started getting sober, you know, the home is where I had my first encounter with God. And it was a very humbling, heartfelt encounter that I, I know that he was like right there. So here's the label that we have that you can see at the bottom. The trash now, can encounter. The trash can encounter. I love this story. Um, the story, the story, like she said, is is humbling. So, you, you know, you're in the home, you're in the program. The home is is a is a program through a ministry where, you know, when you're on your last leg and you know life, you, you just have no more fight in your soul. Um, if you've been a fan of Finding Faith podcast, you would have seen many guests that have been through the home, and that's kind of like a second chance at life. You know, and I, I'm a product of the home. She's a product of the home. So during, during your process in the home, let's talk about the counter. So um, before we get into that, you know, uh, there are there are items that you get in trouble. You're in the home. You know, they, they put you on disciplinary action. So uh, this is a part of a disciplinary action while she's in the home. So first of all, how long were you in the home for at this time? I think I was had only been in the home for like maybe three months. Okay. Was this your first time on, on discipline? Of my own accord and not like a group discipline that the whole house suffered? Your yeah. your your very own. Okay. And what yeah. was the discipline for? <laughs> it wasn't even something okay. All right. It I didn't do anything other than not stop what had happened we were at a region shame the devil tell the truth shame the devil tell the truth the devil had approached me and oh so you had two encounters <laughs> okay go yeah. ahead Continue. so so we were at a regional picnic where you know where all the churches in the region because we were a regional church at the time mm -hmm. and one of the brothers from the home had managed and i can't remember how 
but one of the brothers had managed to slip me a note. And I, instead of shaming the devil and being like, excuse me, do you know you're not supposed to even be talking to me? Don't even try to give me that. Don't, you know. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. No. Did I do that? No, nope. sure didn't. I accepted that note. Mm-hmm. And I put it in my pocket and I hid it. And I got, I got home. We got back to the home. And I was sitting in my bed and I was reading it. And I was like, and I put it away and then I stuffed it because I was on the bottom bunk. I stuffed it in the, in the beams of the top, the top bunk. So then, you know, my, my roommate, Wendy, she was like, Wendy was like my roommate, probably the, almost the entire time I was in the home. And, um, I showed her and I was like, look, and I showed her the note. And I was mad at her at first, um, let me preface this, because I didn't know any better, that mm. she was keeping me accountable and being a good sister in Christ. But she told on me. <laughs> she, she told on me that I had received a note. And um, I was so mad. I was like, I can't, can't believe you told on me. I'm trying to show you, blah, blah, blah. Little did I know that she was being a good sister in Christ. And she was actually really great accountability in my walk like god knew that i needed someone that was gonna tell on me keep me accountable <laughs> hold, hold on i got we got david david mendoza timing in which is wendy's wife he's saying no, that's yes. gina's that's gina's husband okay okay i'm sorry forgive me forgive me that's, that's but, but we got but david timing yeah. in D- david's part of that whole whole church did gina telling you that's what david said wendy did lol wendy did <laughs> wendy did so continue continue sorry and um you know brother my brother eddie he's uh he's he's my spiritual father he was our home director's husband he you know he pulled me out and gave me this long conversation about what it was to be a proverbs 31 woman and i got punished like I thought, you know, it a was Proverbs like 31 woman. So in the home for you guys that don't know what it is, like they have these little sayings where you can be, don't be a three, five Proverbs, three, five or Proverbs 31. You know, don't be a three, five trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. You know, th- those are scriptures they would use to like, you know, trust in God, trust in the process, stop doing what you're doing, you know? So it, just to give you a frame of reference on what these little, uh, phrases mean so Proverbs 31 woman what does that what does that mean so Proverbs 31 10 through 31 uh, describes the description of a worthy woman like who she is you know she's virtuous she builds their house she never tears it down she you know she reaches out to help the needy she you know she doesn't compromise her integrity or the integrity of her household. She, you know, she sits among the elders righteously. Like it's an upstanding woman, like finding value in herself. You know what I mean? And so, you know, he told me, he goes, you're just going back to your old ways. And he goes, and, and that's not who God created you to be. So he put me on punishment and the scriptures alone were heavy like he told me you have to write the entire chapter of proverbs 31 uh so from 10 to 31 because two through nine is like talking to the guy so 10 through 31 that's a lot of scriptures so Mm. i had to write that 50 times that entire thing 
50 times. And then I had to write an essay about what makes me a Proverbs 31 woman. <laughs> and at, at the time, like, I was like, okay, well, all right. Okay. So I started writing the scriptures and I'm reading this and I'm like, okay. But then, you know, brother comes out and he goes, I've got a chore for you. And I'm like, okay. And he takes me outside to the trash cans. Now I'm talking the trash cans, like that you put your stuff in the big dump truck, the big trash truck comes and picks it up. Yeah, the big totes. Yeah. Yeah, the big ones. Yeah. And this one, I swear to God, had not been cleaned since they waste management dropped it off at the curb. So you guys, this is a program home. So can you imagine all the trash that comes in and out of these program homes? I mean, they're filled. Uh, you know, above, like the day after trash day, it's already halfway filled, you know, so keep in mind, you know, just to, to paint the picture, what she's about to tell you, this is a program trash can. So it's got everything and anything in it. So go continue. So inside the trash can itself, there, there was a film like this just gnarly <sighs> smelly film that coated it like a kind of like algae on the edge of a fish tank. you like, Picture like yeah. in Finding Nemo when they're when they're trying to mess up the fish tank so they can escape and it's just like this film that they can write in and it was gross. And he put me to the task of cleaning the trash pan. Okay. And so he gave me the hose and he gave me a brush and he gave me some gloves. So on my hands and knees, like not like hey, I'm gonna scrub it, like no, you're gonna scrub it with your with a brush with your hands. Mm-hmm. And I was like in shock, like, really? And he goes, yep. And being like, okay, fine, whatever. I'm just going to get it done. I pull the trash out, I lay the trash can down and I'm putting all kinds of soap and I'm scrubbing. And as I'm scrubbing, I'm grumbling and I'm getting mad, like legitimately teed off, like mad. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have to do this. This is stupid. I can't believe this. I'm like, I'm getting mad at the trash can. And I'm like, this isn't one. No, no. I'm in here scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. I was, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to make this the cleanest trash can you've ever seen. And I'm mad. And the mad, the anger starts to turn into a breaking moment like i started breaking i'm like i don't have to do this and i'm sitting here and i'm scrubbing and i'm mad and i'm crying and the lord spoke to me okay in a a trash can yeah i know that sounds crazy to say that the lord spoke to me in a trash can but the lord you know can make the rocks cry out so there have been weirder things (laughs) (laughs) and i'm scrubbing And the Lord spoke to me and was telling me, this is what you've become. So let's break that down. All right. So you're you're scrubbing all of this stuff. David mentioned they used to dump crazy stuff in the women's room trash cans. That's per his words. So you're in there. You're you're handling your disciplinary action. You know, I kind of want to get more reference on... When you heard the Lord, did, did the scraping sound go away? Did you start hearing a nostalgic music going on? Or was it a small, still voice that just kind of poured into your head? I just want to get a good picture for people that are listening. Like, man, how do you hear from God? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I doesn't fathom, you know? So, so in trash and as scrub, you know, 
what what happens? Does the noise muffle up? Like, tell us like how, what 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 the encounter is about. It wasn't like I'm not movie, it was about like, like just what what you started going through, you know. So it wasn't like in the movies, you know, when God appears in the movies, it's like, oh, and angels and that music and they're like, oh, no, it was a very, mo very humbling moment because I'm all I can hear is the scrubbing of the brush. Right. And I can hear my heartbeat in my ears. And it was like everything tuned out, but his voice. And it was right here at the back of my, the back of my head. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is what you are. And as I'm scrubbing, I'm having these moments of all these things that I've done that have compromised me and made me this, you know, because they say our bodies are a temple, you know, the yeah. things that we fill ourselves with is who we become. Right. And. I spent all these years filling myself with addiction and the need for negative attention and the need for attention from men and, and all these things that I thought would fulfill me that I, as I'm scrubbing these trash cans, I'm realizing that, that this is a preface of what the Lord is about to do with my life. Okay. That the, the, the work that I put into cleaning this trash can, because I'm over here scrubbing even the things of like, you know, even Brother Eddie, when I got done, he was kind of like, wow, you did a really good job. Like, I don't think he expected <laughs> me to do that good. And, you know, I, I was scrubbing and it was like, this is what the Lord is about to do to me. Like, he's about to clean out all that filth and that gunk and these things in me that mm. are things that are part of me that are not the person that I want to be you know that's it's who I've become but it's not who I was created to be right and so it was that moment when he spoke to me and was you know telling me that this was about what he was about to do to me and this was going to be a life-changing moment so <clears throat> Now, when did you, you and I have had discussions about it, and, and when did you receive your promise scripture? So your promise so, scripture, you know, it is Romans 12, 1 through 2. Why don't you give us some insight how that came about and what it means to you then to now? So we were having a prayer session um, at the house, and what I really loved about our home is they did a lot of um, – like active warring for God and they felt free to let the Holy Spirit move. Like I got to see the Holy Spirit move at a very young spiritual age. And it was, it was so exciting to me, like to, to see the supernatural, to hear the supernatural. And one night we're have a prayer meeting and brother Tony, who was our men's home director, he was like this, like, if you ever pictured a veterano with a big old mustache, that was Tony Tuity. Hmm. And he told me, he handed me the scripture and said, this is your promise from the Lord. Okay. And I was like, wow, okay, cool. So I went to look it up and I, it touched me. Like, I was like, yes, yes. And it's funny because the scripture, like, I thought it just applied to that moment in my life. But as I've, as I've grown and, and the longer I've been saved and the more I've grown as a person, I see that the scripture isn't just a, a promise scripture for that moment in my life. It is, it's evolving that 
it's evolving with me. Like it's a continual process. Not like, okay, here you go. Here's your promise. You had your healing moment. You're done. Have a nice day. No, it, it was, it's continually in my life. It's continually being the promise that God has upon my life. And, um, it's, um, Romans 12 verses one and two. Mm -hmm. This is, and this is in the amplified version. I originally got it in the, the NIV, which was great. I took it to heart so much. And then probably about a couple of years ago, I got an amplified Bible because Martha, my Martha here, um, George and Martha, Martha, uh, had told me that the amplified Bible was really great. And so I bought one and I've loved it because it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, dedicating all of yourselves set apart as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God, which is your rational, logical, intelligent act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes so that you may prove for yourself. It never said that in the NIV. It was like, so that you may prove, because I spent my whole life wanting to prove things to people. Mm -hmm. And it was always to prove to other people. I never was worried about proving to myself because I really didn't hold much value in myself. So when I got this later on, I was like, oh, wow, I got to prove this to myself. It's not proving to the world. It's not proving to my parents. It's not proving to these people that it's proving to myself that I can. Mm -hmm. um, so you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, that which is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect in his plan and purpose for you. Hmm. So at first I was like, oh, you're going to, you know, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I was like, oh man, he's going to heal. He's going to heal my mental illness that has come, um, that I've had for a young age, from a young age. Okay. Um, he's going to heal this. He's going to heal that. Because of my mind, all I was focused on was my mind. But I didn't realize that he's going to renew it. Like, he's not just going to heal it. He's going to renew it. And he's going to keep renewing it. And he's going to keep renewing it. And things are going to continue to go forward and, and be renewed and transformed. Because God's not a one and done type thing. That's right. That's right. So now you you received the promise scripture. I want to go into a little bit now and what you had when you were a child, you know, and what how it handicapped you from doing the things that you've always wanted to do. So I believe it was between the ages of three and four when you were diagnosed with something specific. Yeah. So um when i was four or five it was right in there i think it was right when you start kindergarten because i was getting ready for school pictures and my mom was curling my hair and i just remember feeling lightheaded like like i was going to sleep and the next thing you know i i was laying on the couch i woke up and i was laying on the couch and my mom was on the phone and she was freaking out um they rushed me to Primary Children's Medical Center, which is in Salt Lake. That is a hour and 30 minute drive from where I was at the time. Mm. Um, rushed me down there. And in the 80s, uh, this was 86, no, four, five, six, seven, eight, 88, 89. 
they didn't know a lot about epilepsy. I was diagnosed with epilepsy and they didn't know a lot about epilepsy period, but even more so they didn't know a lot about childhood epilepsy because it was the, one of these mysterious diseases that encounter in your brain that they didn't have a lot of information on back then. They didn't know how it started. They, you know, they had two options to how it was started. It was either genetic or you had a TBI that caused it. And so, you know, they, it, from a young age, they diagnosed me and they put me on medication. Um, and I, so I'd been on medication since I was young. And at first it was really hard um, because the pills were huge. And for a five-year-old, you know, it's hard. And, you know, my mom would have to like put them down in the back of my throat and then make me swallow water. Or they eventually got, you know, dissolvable ones in the mid nineties. And then she would open them up and put them in my yogurt and I'd have to eat the whole entire yogurt. Um, but I was heavily medicated on drugs that nowadays, you know, you tell them to a doctor and they're like, oh yeah, that's a granddaddy psychiatric drug. Like they put me on um, valporic acid and valporic acid was a very heavy drug to be putting a child on. You know, at the time that's what they had to treat it and that's what they knew treated it or helped control it. But I mean, it was such that drug itself was used for such a broad spectrum of things that they used it mainly and primarily at the time on psychiatric cases. So people with schizophrenia, like really severe psychiatric issues. Um, and that's how they treated it back in the day. They put you on that and they put you on a dose and then, you know, it kept you from having seizures, mm -hmm. which it, it worked when I was on it. Um, but, you know, having it in my system from the age of five all the way until high school when I was fighting it, like, you know, the body's developing. Anybody in healthcare will tell you that, you know, it's, we tell our kids not to drink coffee because it'll stunt their growth. Or we tell them, you know, this and that because it messes with them developmentally to be on certain medications, pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. So imagine something as strong as a medication that's used to treat schizophrenia mm -hmm. um, and multiple personality disorder being issued to a young child all the way up through their developmental years. Um, and so I'd been dealing with it. And as I got into, you know, middle school and high school and, you know, when your body starts changing and your hormones are kicking in and you're growing up, it caused a lot of problems. I didn't want to take it because I didn't like how it made me feel. And my, you know, my stepmom was so adamant about me being on it because she didn't want to have to worry about me. Mm -hmm. But it also caused issues like I couldn't sleep. Um, I couldn't, I didn't want to eat. Um, I became depressed. So I went from having just that one medication to having at one point, I think almost five medications I was taking on a daily basis. Wow. Um, be, and I feel like being on that Valporic, being on that medication from such a young age created uh, um, mental health issues within me because my body was used to it. And so when I started like refusing it, you know, I was having episodes of you know I was having episodes of of wanting to commit suicide I wanted to kill myself I it landed me at 13 in a psychiatric hospital for you know oh I think it was almost two weeks or a week and a half that I was there because my parents didn't know how to deal with me and I was 
trying to kill myself and I was trying to kill other people. And, and I believe it's because it all stemmed from being on those medications for so long. Mm-hmm. And so it caused a lot of issues to where I had to, I had to be on medications and I didn't like who I was. I didn't like being on medications because I'd be a zombie. Like I was yeah. just like, you know, emotionless. And we went through so many, like so many, when I look back now, I was like, these are drugs that we don't issue to the inmates where I work because they're highly addictive and, you know, mm-hmm. they create addiction problems. And I, so I think that's where, you know, everything really started from, you know, my body was so used to dependency. So, you know, I've had it, it was a struggle because like, you know, if I didn't get it under control, when I turned 16, I couldn't drive because mm. when you, you could have a seizure in the middle of driving and kill somebody, you know, you could have a seizure standing on the top bleachers. Like there was a lot of things that I couldn't do mm-hmm. um, because of my epilepsy. Um, right. I couldn't ride certain rides at the theme park because it would induce a seizure. I couldn't go to places where strobe lights were at. I couldn't go to clubs or raves and without risking having a seizure. I couldn't even like simply go to a haunted house without it, you know, because those things are triggers. Right. So there was a lot of limitations in your life then. A lot of things you had to like be aware of, be self-conscious of, you know, um, and, and, you know, as we as, as you start moving on forward through life, you know, um, you're dealing with the side effects, you're dealing with life and its issues, you know, and, and you're managing to cope with it, you know, with these with these handicaps. Now, there was a point where the medication wasn't working anymore. You know, this is after after we had met, after we had married, um, the medications weren't working anymore. And what 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 happened when? You know, I remember an episode where um, you had called me after the fact that you had had a grand mall and you had fallen the stairs and by the room, you know, and then, you know, we started taking the steps for you to get, you know, to see what we can do. What happened in the area? So, you know, I went off the medication for a while um, with my older kids because I didn't want to take medication and be pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I seem to do fine. I think I, I look back now and I think that was God protecting me, protecting my children, my unborn children, you know, from something happening. Mm-hmm. Because that was always a threat too. like, you know, if you get pregnant, you have to go off your medication. And then if you go into labor um, and you have a seizure while your baby's in the canal, it can it can kill your child because your body seizes up. You know, it, mm-hmm. there was so many things to this. And, and I went off medication for a while and I was good. And then I started taking medication again and it wasn't helping. And then it all led up. So it'd been a struggle over the last years. And then, um, you know, I met you and things were going great. And then all of a sudden, here we are back. We're having it. I had one here. I was alone by myself. Um, and I was like, all right, this is it. You know, let's, they've got to have more stuff now. Let's try and get a diagnosis from, you know, they've done so much studying and research into epilepsy. There's more now that can be done. Right. And so we scheduled a session at the University of Utah, which is a really, really great teaching hospital. Um, They have a really great um, neurological um, unit. Mm -hmm. And I went for a seven it was supposed to be a week a week-long study um 
which they could keep you longer than a week if they're not seeing some signs of things that they need to see. Right. Um, and during this week long study, you know, they, I have me, they have me isolated in a room. I look like Frankenstein because I'm on a bed. I've got ECG monitors on my heart. I've got an EEG monitor with all these plugs all over my scalp, uh, monitoring my brave waves. I've got arm, you know, heart rate monitors on my fingers, oxygen monitors on my fingers. I've got a blood pressure cuff on me. I'm, I'm literally look kind of like Neo in the matrix, you know, when he's yeah. in the little pod and he's got all these things attached to him. Right. And, you know, they're monitoring everything and they're triggering things. And, and we're just sitting there and I'm just like, I just want to be done with this. I want to, I want to be over. I want, I'm like, man, God, I just want you to take this from me. Like, mm-hmm. I want to, I want to live life, you know? Yeah. And because, the, you know, at this point, the Lord had healed me from so many things. He'd healed my mental illness. He'd, um, he'd healed me as a person, like, and, and made me, he's making me stronger. And, and here comes the attack from the enemy and hitting the one thing that they can't, he can hit, you know, and that's, here we go again with the neurological episodes. So I spent the, spent, you know, time in the university hospital. And while I was there, we were, it was my, they scheduled it um, right before Christmas. And we were having a guest speaker at the Salt Lake church. And, you know, I was panicking about it. I was like, I think I kind of, contemplated rescheduling it because you know i was on the worship team i was the green room coordinator so you know when you have a big guest in town that's a lot you know you got to feed them you want to make sure but i had a really great team that that was able to handle it and they're just these women were amazing and you know i'm there and i'm getting frustrated because they're not finding you know they're they're not finding they're not triggering a huge episode and they're really trying like they put me they do sleep deprivation so every 24 you go 24 hours with no sleep and then they let you sleep for 12 and then they go through another 24 hours of no sleep so i'm sleep deprived uh had you know strobe lights flashing in my face you know um you know they're stressing Black. your body out, basically. They're stress, yeah, they stress it to the max to trigger a seizure to see where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. And so they're stressing it and they're stressing it and they're stressing it. And I'm so exhausted in every part of my, my body that I'm just like, I had no energy left. And, you know, Lorenzo, I'll let you tell this part because, you know, Lorenzo's down at the church with, you know, with the girls and he's handling business, you know. Uh, doing a ministry thing, and at this point, I'll let you tell your side and how it came to be that the miracle happened. So that Sunday, I, I, I remember, you know, I was in the green room with the pastor then, um, and then the guest pastor from Las Vegas. Um, and uh, what had happened was, you know, I was I was there for duty, um, you know, and I had to make sure that things were going, you know, and. I remember the pastor asked me, hey, how is your wife doing? You know, he kind of asked me on the side, and the guest pastor was on the other side of the table, kind of was not included in the conversation. He kind of asked me lightly, and I'm like, okay, she's at the hospital doing a stay right now. You know, she's all right. And he interrupted the conversation, the guest pastor. He interrupted the conversation right away and was like, 
hey, what is wrong with your wife? What's happening? I would like to go pray for her. You know, like right off the bat, like I barely met him. I'm seconds knowing him, you know, and uh, he the way he just interrupted, it was so, there was such a sense of urgency, like the way he told me. And, um, you know, it was, it was on a Sunday, Sunday morning. And I was just like, well, she's there during the stay, you know, and, uh, he goes that right after service, you know, let's, let's go. We're going to, we're going to go right to the hospital right after service. And I'm like, all right, cool. You know, let's, 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 let's go. And, uh, without even notice telling my wife, you know, I just kind of was like, we're just going to bombard the hospital and, you know, he's, he's going to, you know, pray for her or, you know, whatever the case may be at up until the point. You know, so finally, you know, we all up in the vehicle. We meet. We meet at the, the university, and as we as we meet at the university, uh, we we meet in the lobby. We go upstairs and we walk right into her room. And I was like, "Oh, I forgot to tell her we were coming." Or I didn't mention. That. Okay. I, didn't... I was gonna pause and say we need to pause here and mention. So I have been laying in bed at this point for like five days straight. Um, I'm not allowed to like do a full shower because I've got to keep these monitors on me. So I'm like doing, you know, bird baths and things like that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Did he give me any notice? No, like my grill wasn't even brushed. I had just been laying in bed. I did not expect him to come. <laughs> I expected him to come, him and the girls, but I did not expect him to bring our pastor and a guest no. speaker. <laughs> a guest speaker. And then I know there was someone else there too. Like it was a whole entourage of people. Right. And so I'm like, I'm like, kind of like in my head, I'm like, bro, you didn't even give me a heads up. I, I, I have my grill brush. I could brush my teeth, could brush my hair, done something, you know, could have changed my pajamas into like some like different pajamas because, you know, that's all I'm in pajamas in a bed. <laughs> and so I was at a very vulnerable moment right there because, you know, I'm, I'm used to like, okay, well, let, at least let me, you know, clean up a little bit. And so he enters the room and he's like, hey, and then Pastor Lee sticks his head and he's like, hey, sis. And I'm like, hey, pastor. <laughs> and I see that there's someone behind him. I'm like, oh man, here we go. Okay. Visitors. And it was so interesting because at that moment that's where my inner insecure narrative stopped because I felt the I literally before this pastor walked into the room I felt the fire of the Lord coming like it was like he was this pastor was just radiating it like you know when you go and you stand by a fireplace oh yeah the closer you get to the fireplace the hotter it feels like, mm -hmm. that's how it felt like, uh, you know, that the, the fire of the Lord was right there. And I was like, oh, man. And he offered to pray for me. And he told me, he goes, your miracle is around the corner. And he was praying for me. And then he gave me word. He said, your miracle's around the corner. Your miracle's around the corner. And he prayed. He laid hands on me. And I felt the presence of God so strong, like, flush over every part of my body every part from all the way from the top to the tip of my toes and you know if you haven't experienced that where you felt the glory like you know some people call it the glory of god some people call it the fire of the lord you know if you haven't experienced that it's hard to understand 
um, and I'd experienced it once before. Mm-hmm. And I remember it being a, a really great feeling. And, and, you know, he laid hands on me and he prayed. And I was like so touched that, you know, when I went to bed that night, because I was on a last, I, I was getting to sleep that night. I wasn't, wasn't a sleep deprivation night. So I was laying there and I was listening to, I'd put worship music on my phone and I was laying there in the bed falling asleep. And, you know, the nurses come in and check on you every hour. So I knew, I was like, whatever, I don't care what they think at this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the next day, um, they had told me, you know, the neurologist will come and see you and look at your results and, you know, we'll see what we're going to do from here. We may, we're probably going to keep you though because we haven't had anything that we really want to, we really want to see a true episode. Mm-hmm. like a full-blown episode and I said okay and the you know the neurologist came in the next morning and, you know she's like how are you doing I said I'm good and she goes so it's really interesting um we're actually gonna let you go home tonight and I was like really she goes yeah she goes I'm looking at these readings I'm looking at the readings and I'm not seeing any abnormal neurological responses at all. Like I'm, I'm not seeing any seizure activity in your brain in the last, you know, since he had prayed for me. Cause it was about 24 hours later when she came in, she goes, we haven't seen, you know, we've seen responses, not enough, not a big enough one that we wanted. And she goes, but in the last 24 hours, we haven't seen anything at all. And she goes, you know, we're going to send you downstairs for an MRI um, before you go. And, but you you can pack up and we're going to take everything off you. And, you know, you can go home because we're not, we're not seeing any epileptic activity on your brain whatsoever. Mm. And I was in shock because it was the first time in my life I had had, an EEG where I didn't have any epileptic activity. Hmm. Uh, like even slight, because even like on a normal functioning basis where I just, you know, do a sleep deprivation test with an EEG, there right. was, there was always left brain epileptic activity. So in your mind, after hearing that news, were you already convinced that it was a miracle or was it still you were you in a shocked moment at this time i was um i was shocked Mm. because my whole life i had been told you know if you don't grow out of this you're gonna have it forever Mm. um and i i was it was kind of processing it even when i called you i remember when i called you it was in the evening right yeah, and I, I was like, so I'm I'm getting you to come home. Well, what did they say? I said, well, I remember telling him in shock. I said, you're never going to believe. They said they didn't find any epileptic. They're not finding any epileptic activity at all. They hmm. said, I can stop taking medication. I can stop having a restriction on my driver's license. And I can go and live a normal life. <laughs> wow. And I remember you saying, wow, Really? Really? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, like, this is it. I don't have to take medications. Like, I was in shock that the doctors were saying that that was it. I'm good. I can just go home and live my life normally. Yeah, and I, I remember that because I, I had a 
pack up the girls and come on down and and <laughs> was it no that, that was the night before actually I had I came straight from work uh, to come and get you but man what a what a what an amazing miracle that was you know because from somebody being told one thing all their life to the next thing <laughs> here's your path to freedom you know and and you you knowing like man that that is a miracle you know that it just doesn't happen you know so you receive a miracle you receive a healing you know you and i are both living it you know and and it's kind of like it's a shock right you know it's like well what do you want to do now so now comes now comes the big question like you know where 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 in between when you receive the miracle to saying you know, I want to do something. I want to have a career path change. You know, how did that come about? I mean, I, I know, but I want I want everybody else to hear. You know what what was going on through your mind the next few weeks. Oh, let me see. I just you know, let's see. We had the holidays, and then. Oh my goodness, it wasn't long after when that was the that following summer was when I started. It, well, I think it was like two weeks. No, it was fast. I mean, because you had mentioned to me what you wanted to do, and I'm like, Are you sure you want to do that? And mind yeah. you, this is the time when the whole George Floyd thing was just you know in the midst of kicking off, and all yeah. of this stuff that was going on, you know, she had mentioned it to me, and uh, you know, me, I was like. Man, that's I will support you in anything you do, but I need to pray about that one, man. I mean, that's 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 tough because you know you mentioned you know, hey, I want to go into law enforcement. My family's in law enforcement, you know, yada yada yada, and it it just kind of like it was a pill for me to swallow because it was like, okay, you know, the next steps to this, how do we go about this now? You know, you're 34 at the time or 35 at the time, you know, you're you're mid aged. You know, and there was a lot of there was a lot of things to take into consideration, you know, um, even with the 10 percent doubt of like, what if the epilepsy reoccurs? You know what I mean? What if there's a reemission of it? You know, but again, in your words, like where where did God speak to you in it? Where did you find, you know, the courage to like, I'm going to change my life now yeah. <laughs> in so many words? So. <clears throat> At this point, I've been a hairdresser for the last nine years. Um, when I was younger, I, I told my mom, like, I told my mom a lot of things. Like, I was like, I want to be G. I watched G.I. Jane. And I was like, I want to be G.I. Jane. Like, <laughs> legit. I doubt that the real G.I. Jane will ever see this podcast. But if you do, I want it to be a bad mama jamma like you were. Like, <laughs> I wanted that. And my mom was like, first of all, you have a pussy. Second of all. I don't think you'd cut it in Navy SEAL school. And I was like, yeah, I, yeah, I could. And then, uh, you know, cause she was a law enforcement officer, you know, she, she inspired me. Like I never thought of the dangerous side. I just thought, oh man, she's a cop. That's cool. I went on ride alongs and I sat in when she was bailiff at the court on her extra duty time. And, you know, she did cool things and she served warrants and she carried a gun and she was cool. And I didn't, I didn't realize that, you know, there was that threat of worrying if you were coming home every night. I was just fascinated by the cop thing. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's so cool. I want to do that. And then I was like, well, maybe I watched CSI. And I'm like, oh, maybe I want to be a crime scene technician. And she brought me down to reality real quick on that. She's like, honey, um, not everybody who dies are adults. You know, there, yeah. there's old ladies and young babies. And she's like, I, I don't think you could really handle that. And I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, so this was in for a long time that I had thought about this and it, it came down to either being a hairdresser or a, uh, a police and being in law enforcement. And I chose hairdresser obviously. And then later on in life, it was like, I saw what was going on in the world. And I just wanted to make a change. Like, I had been given a word by Lorena one time. Lorena Parker, she's um, with the Eagle Rock Church. We were at a women's convention. I think it was the women's convention where we had coffee for the first time. (laughs) And um, she prayed over me. I could be wrong. I think it was a leadership one in Palm Springs before that. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, she prayed for me and she was, you know, giving me word from God. And she goes, stop trying to be you are unconventional the lord created you that way mm-hmm. don't don't stop that process you're not going to fit in and that's how god's created you to be you're not that cookie cutter and i was like you know i've lived by that that's my insta it's my insta instagram handle you know i'm an unconventional warrior mm-hmm. like i've always went about things that way and when it came up and I saw what was going on, like it hurt me. It hurt me that this this profession where people go and sacrifice their time and their lives mm-hmm. um, was being villain villainized, and rightfully rightfully so in the George Floyd situation. Like I don't want to get into the politics of it all, but like that, it all comes down to like. If we, you know, if we blame, if one bat, if one apple is bad, that doesn't mean the fruit on the whole entire tree is bad. Right. And I wanted, I wanted to be the change. I wanted to go into this and be like, you know what? I, I come from a background of addiction and from, from things like this. And I come from these things and I, I can make a change. Like I came in with this super hopeful. I'm like, I want to make a change. Like. I want to make a change. I want to I want to be able to hit the streets and be able to tell these people that I understand and try and help them and try and help um you know be the hope like reinstill right. hope in law enforcement in people in people in law enforcement you know and and I wanted to be able to help others you know like this is all came down to the fact that I want to help not only the people that are out there the community that I serve but also the people that I'm serving next to, the people that I'm brothers and sisters in arms with um, that are risking their lives to go out and serve a community that may or may not like them. Mm-hmm. And not on a personal thing, but just because of a generalized status. And I was like, okay, let's try it. And I remember proposing it to you. I'm like, I saw the thing for Weber State and I was like, well, what do you think? And you, really, you really want to do this? Yeah. So we tried, we did it. And I enrolled 
and they called me and they're, you know, they're like, okay, you got to fill out this, this packet. And it was for post, which is our peace officer standards and training. It's who we're accountable to. Mm-hmm. And they do a thorough, deep background check of your entire life. Like these people, I think the only people that know more about me uh, than these people is God himself. Like, you know, you have to be accountable for everything in your life. And even doing that, like going through that packet and acknowledging the things in my life that I had done wrong and this, you know, the sins that I had committed and mm-hmm. and who I used to be like re-acknowledging that it was hard to do because there was a long point in my life where I didn't want to acknowledge that I was wrong I didn't want to acknowledge that I was doing something wrong and to mm-hmm. to to lay all that out in paper like I I'm glad I had the Lord because I really probably would have struggled with myself and being like man, I was just a God awful, horrible person. Like, look Mm. at all these things that I did. And, and I was like, look at all these things that I, I did. I'm like, you know, you know, all right, all right. I've done these things and all right. If the Lord wants me, you know, to do this, then it'll happen. And if not, then it, you know, I can find another way to help. Right. and i passed yeah like, i passed i was like you're gonna tell me that that like i laid out my testimony basically i laid out my testimony to these people of of how i've changed my life and yes i was addicted and yes i did this like they want you to list how many times you drank how long did you drink for how many beers you had they want they you know they ask you have you ever smoked marijuana? If so, how many times? You want me to try to remember how many times I smoked pot, like on separate instances, being as accurate as you can? Like, list a number. I was like, uh, and then they're like, describe it. How, you know, explain yourself. Explain why I smoked pot. Like, they want to know how many, when, and why. And I, you know, I was explaining, you know, well, this is, I did it this and this and this, and I bought it, you know, I, I never, I may have bought it once or twice, but I always smoked off of a friend and, you know, I, I never got distribution charges, which all the times that I bought, like, I am so shocked that I never legally got in trouble. And I admitted to all of it, but I completed a rehabilitation program. It's been, mm-hmm. you know, at currently it's 14 years of sobriety right now. Um, and they saw the changes and, and, and even Paul, he was the director of my academy. Even Paul was like, you're making, you made the changes. He goes, emphasize that, emphasize that you've been through rehabilitation and you've done this and you've done that. And this is a past in your life. And, and sure enough, I got in, I got accepted to start the police academy. And I was, which, which was shocked. Which was a life goal that has been achieved, you know, and well, getting accepted being the first part, you know, and uh, immediately in, in terms of doing this, that had effect on, on our family, had effect on our marriage, had effect in ministry because the people, you know, that thought that had our backs and thought they loved us, you know, after receiving a decision like this, it was kind of like, well, we want her to stop doing what she's doing. You know, and me being a 
you know, a, a spiritual, somebody that's connected with God and just, I wasn't receiving that really well, you know, and I was like, well, how do you, how do you tell somebody, you know, to not, to stop what they want to do because God's given them something, you know, in return to reach for, you know, the, the, all, this whole thing affected the way, you know, us as a couple, us as, as, as Christians moving forward. You know, we received a lot of different backlash in return, you know, in return, you know, well, and, and initially the support and the support was there, you know, like in yeah, the beginning, we yes, excited, in the beginning, excited. but then the time constraints of what the Academy was going to take started to, to set in. And, you know, I was at the Academy on PT days, I was there at 5.45 a.m., which means I left my I left the house about 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And some days I didn't return till 6, um, 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. And that was Monday through Friday. And then when I got into the latter half, it was almost every day but Sunday that we were either at the range or we were on base yeah. scenarios. Like, my, I was home enough to see my kids go to bed. Um, maybe have dinner with them, kiss my husband goodnight, mm -hmm. and I'm up before he's up, and I'm off before he's off. You know, I'm up, I'm up and off before he's even out of bed for work. And right. it took a lot of time, and I was, I had my hands in a lot of ministries, and um, you know, we had talked, and I had, you know, said that I wanted to let go of one ministry, the the green room ministry, because it. It was so functional without me there. Like the the team that is there is they're amazing and they're wonderful women and they just they love taking care of other people and that that ideally was perfect, you know, right. to hand off a ministry that, you know, is fully functional. And it came into question that, you know, um I was sat down and the conversation that was had really disheartened me because I knew that God had placed this on my heart. This was something that God has called me to do because right. you know, I'm letting him have control in this aspect. And he's made a way where some might say it's impossible because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm older. I'm not in the best to help all the cadets that I was with in the class of 24. I was the oldest in the class. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, you know, the oldest. Everybody was like between the ages of 21 and probably 30. And here I am with quite a bit of seniority on all these, all these young kids. And, and I say kids because that's how I saw them in the beginning. They've become, they become my comrades. They've become my friends. They've become um, people that I've learned from and that, you know, I've gained perspective from. But I got pulled in and I got sent down and I got asked, you know, do you really think um, that this is what God has called you to do? And I said, yes, I do. Well, what about your husband? What about his calling? And the statement was made that I believe, not me, I believe that going forward with this could pull your husband away from his calling. And it really hit me hard because I'm like, man, my husband's got a big calling on his life. And I, for a moment, I was like, am I being selfish? And then I snapped back and I'm like, no, I'm not. I know, 
I know when God's speaking to me and I know when I'm doing my refiving it and doing it on my own accord. And this was something I felt called to do. Mm-hmm. And it just really made me really sad because, you know, not everybody's going to understand your calling and that's not for them to understand. It's for God to understand. It's for you to understand because it's God's calling on your life. Right. Um, you know, and, and so the support dropped out and it became a really hard time for me spiritually because I had wanted so bad to have a close relationship and, you know, have something more. I had my spiritual mama, um, sister Martha, and she saw me through some really, really rough times. And then she, you know, she, God called her on to do her thing. And, and I had to, you know, had to move on to the next, you know, like God had to bring another woman of leadership into my life. And, and I was like really just excited and nervous all at the same time. And, and I gave it a shot and it just, um, I ended up coming out hurt Mm. and, and I struggled, but you know, I found, I still kept God in the forefront. Like I was like, no, it's okay. You know what? I'm not going to let this, this is not going to take me away from God. I can still seek God. I don't need, um, I don't need the church. It's not that I don't need the church, but it's about a personal relationship. And I drew tight to God and I would listen to worship music while I was studying and, and while I was running and in my head, but because we know when we take our tests, we couldn't have um, headphones in our ears running. You know, we had to do it just to the sound of our feet. And I would get discouraged running because I could not get my time down. And, you know, I'd be worshiping and I, in my head, I'm keeping pace and I'm singing that old, when I went to the enemy's camp <laughs> and I took that what he stole from me and in my head I'm running this track and I'm like you know what I am gonna take back what he stole from me this is this is it I'm gonna I'm gonna do something amazing I'm gonna I I had it in my mind that even even though I'm like hyping myself up you know those moments where you're hyping yourself up even though deep down in your heart you're like this probably isn't gonna happen but let's hype ourselves up you know what I mean right 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 oh, I'm going to pass this test. You watch, I'm going to make my run times go down because there's a lot of physical standards that you have to meet when you're in the academy. Most people don't realize that because, you know, like when we see, you know, police uh, on TV or like, you know, growing up, you know, you saw the Simpsons and Chief Wiggum always had a donut in his mouth and a belt that that kept his pants up, but he was big. And, you know, you know, you see these stereotypical like, cops on tv and funny you know they're always got a donut in their hand and they're always overweight and it's funny because when you get into the academy like they're running you to almost to the point of puking there's a couple times you know but they're running you and and they're expecting the best out of you because you have to be able to fight to save a life like you have to be able to fight through the pain fight through your own personal and then what it is really is it's building you mentally to be mentally stronger because when your body says no, your mind says yes and your body follows suit. Mm. So it's, it's making you stronger mentally. When you think you can't, you have to push through and say, no, I can because you've got 
your cadets, like, I can't count how many times I had cadets coming back for me, you know, because I was the last one in the group. Right. And that's, I struggled physically when, you know, you had your time standards you had to meet. And my initial runtime when I interviewed and did my one was a 21, 45 minute mile and a half run. Entrance standard was 1630, I believe, somewhere in the 16 minute range. Now that's a lot of minutes you have, I'd have to shave off in like three weeks. And keep in mind, the only running I had done um, was like running to the store. And I, no, I don't mean literally running with my feet. Like I don't drive my Chevrolet, <laughs> I drive my car. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, or I run to catch a kid or I don't run long distances. And, and so I hadn't, I'd gained a lot of weight. I'd gotten very fat and happy in my marriage. <laughs> and me too. <laughs> and so it was, it was a lot of work. Even, even, um, chief, chief AC Rogers, he pulled me aside and he's like, listen, he goes, it's a lot of time to shave off. He goes, how long have you been prepping? And I said, I've only been prepping three weeks. He goes, it's a lot, but it can be done. He goes, but it, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. Like, I think even deep down in his heart, he thought this, yeah, she's not going to be able to cut it. Um, which is a fair assessment because, you know, looking at that, like that's what almost six minutes you've got to shave off and run for a run in, in, you know, in three weeks, that's, even professional runners will tell you that that that's a feat that's hard. And over the course of the academy, like I grew as a person so much, like in myself and what I'm capable of. Because you know, over the years, I went from a broken, um, very insecure woman, um, and I gained security in myself and who Christ was building me to be, and the woman that I am. And this amplified it even more of what I'm capable of. Like it broke down barriers in my mind of things that I didn't think I was capable of. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't think I was capable of passing this test, but, you know, and I didn't think I was like, man, these guys are going to think I'm a joke. I'm going to be that burden in the class, you know, that burden of a cadet. And it really inspired me that they came back for me. You know, these cadets that like, they're in physical fitness, you know, they're, they're in shape. They, they're young, they're, they're headstrong. They're, you know, and even in the second class, like I'm surrounded by people that, you know, they've, they've been in the military. They've, you know, they've been to war. These young kids, they've been to war, they've seen the military, they've, they've lived rough lives or they've lived great lives and they've always been in shape and they've always fought hard and, and they'd come, you know, they'd come back for me, no man left behind. And I was like, man, I don't, it, I, they inspired me so much and how they were doing that I, to have them come back for me, I was like, I don't want them to have to come back for me. And I would push myself harder every time because I wanted them to run less than the time before when they came back to get me. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time it was, it's funny because some of these people like would say, oh, good stuff, Rivera, good stuff. 
And I'm like, did this guy just say that to me? Like, this guy said that? And I was like, wow. Like, okay. And I'd, I'd see myself improving as as it got on later and later. And I would push myself more and more because I wanted, I knew that God was doing something. And I managed to bring my runtime down. My best, my P, my personal best came down to 1505. Mm. That's six minutes and 40 seconds I shaved off in a matter of nine months. I was still 10 seconds shy of passing. Mm-hmm. But it always came down to those seconds and it was always a reminder of like, okay, well, are you going to give up now? Or are you going to keep fighting? Are you going to give up? And are you going to keep fighting? And in the academy, they teach you, you have to keep fighting no matter what's going on around you. You have to keep fighting and not in a literal sense, like keep fighting mentally, keep fighting for the right, keep fighting for truth, keep fighting for justice, keep fighting the good fight in saving lives, in helping, you know, other people fight through what you're going through mentally, that fight through your insecurity, fight through your weakness, fight through the I can't because you can. You have to fight through it because you're, you're, again, like I said, when you train your body, your body can give up. Your body will want to give up. And if mm-hmm. your mind succumbs to your body, to where you're like, yeah, I'm tired. I'm just going to give up. Your body will follow your mind. But if you be like, no, I'm going to push through this. I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep pushing because I've got to make this happen. Your body will follow suit. Yeah, the recovery period is going to suck a lot. You know, like you're going to be hurting. Your body's going to be hurting. Your muscles yeah. going to be hurting. But you're, you'll have followed through. And there's a, there's a lot of portions that you know you're being really modest about you know you're 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 kind of summarizing your your academy but from the husband's perspective seeing what you would come home through on a daily basis you know that's where the emotional support the spiritual support you know there was a lot of that because you know you you would come home defeated you know there'd be days where you would just be so ran down you know physically but but mentally you would you would you would home in on it and start believing in it you know what i mean and i remember there would be times where i'd have to talk to you you know and, and and you know just try to get you back on track you know because you know god god healed you for a reason and you know this is what this is what you're going to do you know through through that i want to get to you know as you had those moments like how did you tune up your faith in order to, because I, 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 I titled this Faith Over Failure, you know what I mean? Because you had to tune up your faith somewhere in order to bury the failure, because the failure was peaking up in, at a lot of times, you know. Um, yeah. It was a daily fight, you know, just because of the physical aspects of it. That's what was daunting you the most, and then mentally it would drain you as a, as a being, as a person. You know, so how did you, you know, in a situation like this, 35 years old, you know, uh, not in the, you know, not in the perfect shape as as most of your colleagues were, you know, you, you, you had challenges you had to meet and were failing to meet them. 
almost almost every day and every quarter of of your semesters you know where how did you really get a hold of god in order to to push down push down your failure um i mean oh you know failure was a failure i think that was really a big lesson that god was teaching me was how to take failure gracefully because that literally was all I faced for my goodness probably from August that I started all the way until maybe February or March that following year um because I was, I wasn't hitting the standards, and and I had to go. You know, I I tell this because, you know, not everybody knows, but most people and the people in the academy know. I had to go through the academy twice, um, because I didn't I didn't make the cut, and um, it was so hard, um, because the 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 twenty four class I really loved them. They were an amazing group of people. Um, they were so inspiring and. And they saw me push and I fought and I fought and I fought and I was improving. But every test, every PT test, every PT, I felt like I was failing. When mm -hmm. it came to the standards test where they were actually grading me, I knew I was failing because that's what they were telling me. You're failing. You failed. You got to retake. And I, I, when it comes to testing, I did twice as much as the cadets around me because I failed the first one. So I'd have to go back and take another one. And then I'd have to go back and take a third one, which was a different physical fitness test. And so I'm literally, you're, you're, you're not wrong. I, um, I was being modest. I, I faced failure on a, on a regular basis. And and it was hard. It was so hard. And, you know, the hope was still there because, you know, Paul would instill hope in me that, hey, you know, there's still a chance. Let's make this work. We're going to work on it. And, you know, he was working with me on changing my diet and changing my physical fitness standards. And I started working out on a daily basis. And, you know, it didn't help that the start of my first round of Academy, the first two weeks of it, I was quarantined with COVID. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and so it wrecked my respiratory system. It kind of set back all the work. I wasn't getting to do PT for the first two weeks with the rest of my cadets. So when I came into it, I was already two weeks more behind than I already was in my right. current physical status. Right. And then, you know, trying to build my respiratory system back up to run uh, miles and miles. Because if anybody's been through the Weber State Police Academy, you know one thing, the Rogers like to run. And when they say run, like, it's not like, oh, we're going to go for a quick mile and a half run. No, it's, oh, hey, we're going to go do a quick three mile, four mile run. You know, the Rogers like to run. And so we did a lot of running like that. And, you know, I got out of COVID quarantine and, Probably a week later, I sprained my knee. And the doctor gave me a no run order for two weeks. And exactly two weeks from the run, you know, from the, the exact two week mark, 
that I got off of my no run order was my next PT test. Hmm. So I couldn't run, I couldn't prepare, and I couldn't train for the run that I had to take to pass the test. So it's like failure after failure after failure. And, you know, I know you'd see me come home just times just discouraged, questioning what I'm doing, questioning it, like, and you know, reinstilling me, you know, well, you know, God put you here for a reason, you know, keep going. And, and Paul was instilling me while I was at the school, hey, let's do stairs, do stairs during your break, do push-ups during your break, do come down and do the bicycle, the airdyne bike, you know, like do workouts in between on your breaks. And so like, you know, you're sitting in six hour law classes and then you <laughs> take a break and go do pushups. You're wrecking your body. You're wrecking your mind because if there is nothing that kills your m- brain more, it is a six hour law class, um, <laughs> six hours of law. And so, you know, it was failure, failure, failure. And then, you know, it came to the point where I didn't pass the test and there was nothing more I could do to test. And I couldn't carry on with the rest of my cadets into the BCO block, which is your corrections block. And, you know, Paul goes, but you know what? Take this time off. It was like a month and a half. Take this time off, be with your family, work on your fitness, stay focused on your diet, hit the gym twice a day. So I started doing that and I came back and I was so excited because I got to start the LEO block with all my buddies. I was like, hey, I'm back. And they're like, Rivera, we're so glad to see you. We're so glad you came back. We, because they genuinely didn't want me to quit. Like, these guys at this point were more invested in me than I was sometimes. They're like, we're so glad you're back. We're so glad you didn't quit. We were hoping. And I came. And that, it was probably day two that I was in on my LEO block when I had to take the PT test to qualify to, to continue on with my buddies. And I went down and I took the test with three other pe- with two other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them, one of them was my best buddy, Joseph. Like, I wanted him to pass so bad so he could continue on and graduate because... He came, he has a heavy testimony where, you know, he comes out of a life of a drug addicted parents and, and this whole amazing testimony so that he can go and help other kids like him because a police officer took care of him and he wants to be that police officer taking care of. And I was like, yeah, man, your story inspires me, motivate me. Yeah. I'm cheering him on. And then I had personal issues that I had with the other one. I was like, man, if she, if she passes and I don't, I'm going to be so disappointed. And it was a very selfish, very horrible thing um, to think, you know, and Mm. to say to myself. And it was, it was a very, it was very, it was, you know, it was what it was. You know, I said it, I thought it, and I went down there. And I had so much faith that I was going to pass that day that I like left my computer de- computer on my desk up in the classroom. I was going to walk back into class and be like, yeah, I did it. And I was going to sit and finish the rest of the block with my cadets, my fellow cadets. And I had the faith because I was like, I have to have faith that this is going to happen. I believe in myself. I've got this. Right. I haven't come this far for nothing. I've put in the hard work. And I failed. Again. And it was so hard because I had to go back to the academy with the two cadets that passed. And I had to walk in in front of all my friends and my fellow cadets. And I had to pack up my bag and walk out. Mm. Not to come back, to, to be done. 
um, and for me to re-enroll with the next session. And it was so, it was interesting to me because I knew that they believed in me and I knew I believed in me and how much I believed despite all the doubt that I was facing these guys, these guys that had served in the military and they, these were, these guys that are really actually amazing guys, you know, I'm packing up my stuff and Anderson, he's sitting next to me and he's just looking and I don't even want to look at him, but he's looking up at me like, and I, he, I looked at him finally and he goes, and I go, and I'm like trying not to cry because I don't want these guys to, to see me be that girly girl. Oh my God, you know, like, because I wanted to be there. I knew I was here for a reason. And Anderson and Brands and Noel and Joseph and all these guys that I looked up to that were like the peak perfection in their physical and they were doing great in class and they were, they're going to go on and be great officers. Mm -hmm. All lined up outside the door of the classroom and each one of them gave me a hug and said, Rivera, don't give up. We want to see you come back. We want to see you come back next session. Don't, don't give up on this. You're going to be a good cop. Like, like these guys, these guys who I knew were born and built to be great officers mm-hmm. are lined up at the door telling me not to quit. And it broke me and I came home and I remember because remember I came home and I ate a pint of ice cream. Yeah. And I sat in my failure for a minute and I was like, you know what? I am going to come back. I don't know how I'm going to come back because I don't know how we can finance this again, you know, but God will make a way. God will make a way. And I started going to the gym on a regular basis. I started working hard. I started believing, you know, they want me to come back. Okay. They think I got this. You know, these guys are, are great examples of what law enforcement officers and be like, God just started using all these things to motivate me. Like people that don't even know me believe in me. Like then the Lord's like, okay, see all these people, they believe in you. Like, okay, what more do I have to do to get you to believe in yourself? Right. And then the victory started coming. I'm like, no, I'm going to fight through this. I'm going to give my best. I'm going to fight through the pain. I'm going to continue. And I went a couple times and ran PT with my fellow cadets at the academy even though I had just failed, like, and I wasn't, I didn't have to be there anymore. You know, I wasn't committed to PT because I wasn't in the class anymore. And I showed up and I was like, yeah, I need, this is, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, and so I started working out more and I started fighting and started fighting. And the next round came and I was going to be known you know, one person said to me, you know, I, I think it's so brave what you're doing. You come back and you, you're you doing this and you're holding your head up high. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that for a second. And I'm like, man, like, was that like, I'm like, man, I'm like, you know what? You're right. I'm not going to walk in the shame that I failed before. Yeah, I failed, but I'm still here. Mm-hmm. I failed and I'm coming back for more. I'm failed. I failed and I'm doing double the PT. I'm going to work on my days that it's not required. I'm going to work on the days that I'm f- exhausted from sitting in class or, you know, emotionally drained from doing scenarios. I'm going to keep doing more. And um, 
God started building this faith in me that that overcame failure so many times, like that towards the end, like my buddy Oslin, he's like, oh man, it was three seconds. And I was like, yeah, but you know what? I'm going to get those three seconds next time. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's right. That's right. And the failure turned into this, you know, like, okay, I didn't pass, but I did better than I did last time. Right. And that became the goal that like, even if I'm in failure, if I failed less than I failed the time before, I'm succeeding. Mm-hmm. You know, like I may have only shaved off 10 seconds, but you know what? I shaved off 10 seconds. That's a victory. He, yeah. God started to help me find the victory in the failure. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you may fail at something, but there's always a victory or two or three or four in the failures in life. Like, and I started to think about it, like all the things that I failed at, like led me to go on to a victory. Right. And if we don't know failure, we don't appreciate the victories in life. We don't. Yeah. If I wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have went through what I went through as an alcoholic and had those failures, I wouldn't appreciate the victory of my sobriety. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't been introduced to God, you know, if I had just been born a Christian and, and this is not saying anybody who's born in the church doesn't understand it, but if I'd have just been born into the church and known God from the day I was born, I feel like I wouldn't know him as well as I do now because the failures brought me closer to him. Mm. The failures brought me closer to God because when you're in the midst of failure, you're you're down and that's a point where the enemy is more than happy to come in and try and take the win for his team and and take that defeat and run with it and and you have to be willing to say that was a failure but there's a victory here the victory is that's i did right. better the you victory know is i grew you, you know it's funny and, and through your story you know as as we're you know getting to a big victory um in the Bible where it's continually states when something's happened, a miracle has occurred and a great event was going to happen. It's so funny. Well, I can't say funny. It's just, it's so, how can I say profound how Jesus always says, according to your faith, you've been healed. According to whatever the case may be, you will now go ahead, you will see, you will walk. You're no longer dealing with the failure in your life. You know, so it's funny how you're saying that, but then yet how Jesus comes in and says, according to your faith, you know, you have been healed. You know, according to your faith, Julie, you know, you were now walking into what I have told you you would do, you know, which is starting to now bring us to the point you, 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 you finally walked in it. You've gained your victories. You know, God is doing extreme, something extreme in your life. You know, you've been healed. You know, you went through all these battles physically, emotionally, mentally. And then we reach a proud moment to where you finally pass the academy, which was, which was the fight in itself. You know, that's not even getting a job yet. That's just right. 
academy. It's just the know? first hurdle. <laughs> it's just the first hurdle of it, you know. And uh, you get a you get a job offer, you know, uh, uh, and, and things start happening in your life. You know, things start happening in, in our in our family. Things happening at home. A lot of things God's starting to do now. You know, I'm gonna show a little picture really quick. And this little picture, no, as we as we start getting ready to like you know get into you know closing everything out, but this picture up here on the on the right right corner over there, it's a picture of you holding uh, holding your badge. But before that picture, here's one where you're actually getting officiated in, you know, and there's the signing of 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 you, you know, finally reaching your life goal. You know, which was uh, again a very proud moment, not only for yourself but for your, you know, me, the girls, everybody in your family, people that have been there since the beginning, rooting you on. You know, that's a that's a proud moment in your history, in our history. You know, seeing you actually sign the papers. You know, that's a visual of a God. That's uh, it's what God has envisioned, and then that's what we're seeing now, you know. And in this post right here, in, in this one, I kind of want to, I'm going to go ahead and, and read something you posted about, which kind of like uh, start gearing us to your final words. You know, right here, you state, this calling that had been placed upon my heart, Late in my life, finally came to fruition. After all, after all of the struggles and hard work, after facing failures constantly and staring those failures in the face, not saying not today, I am not done yet. Period. Studying to now everything that encompasses the profession, I worked so hard and I never gave up. Through in parenthesis, in parentheses it says through I thought I wanted to a couple times. LOL, God got me through. This is where I am supposed to be in this amazing department I work for. This is only the beginning of the next part of my journey. You know that 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 pose has so much more to it. But that in itself alone, everything you have been through, you know, you 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 have fought it. You had fought the good fight of. You're continuing to fight the good fight of faith. You know, not only in your in your walk with God, but in 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 society, in your community. You're making a difference now. You know, people look up to you. We go out to dinner. People see you in your uniform, and they come out of the way to say thank you for your service. You know, like. To see and look back at what you've gone through, an alcoholic, you know, somebody scrubbing out trash cans, you know, where God had to have a moment with you and say, I'm going to clean up your life to the moment where you're standing, signing this document, uh, you know, reaching and achieving a life goal, you know, for people that are now, you know, uh, uh, that have dreams, that people that are stuck uh, in their mindset, they think they can't do it. What words do you have for them? My biggest advice for people who have this dream, this burden on their heart that <clears throat> their family might tell them that they can't do it, 
their friends might tell them that they can't do it. Their whole world of what they may know will tell them that they can't do it. Um, You know, my advice is if it's stirring in your heart, if the burden is there and if you feel the urge uh, or the calling or the drive to do it, do it. It's, it's, don't let people talk you out of what God has called you to do. Because people were very fickle. The human, human beings were very, very fickle. We're very, very, we have uh, these restrictions on us that we doubt what we can do. We doubt what others can do. We doubt if they should do it, if they could do it. We're never that blind faith with each other that we should have. And mm-hmm. if you have that, that calling, that passion, don't let anyone talk you out of it. Wow. Ever. Like, push forward, fight against it. Let God prove them wrong. Let God prove you right. Let God prove what he's created you to do, to be called to do, to accomplish. Because the Bible, and it's a very, I know it's a very cliche one, but you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Absolutely. All things. And it can be anything. If you feel called to to go... uh, adopt a whole bunch of children and love them like the parents that they need do it if someone's like well how are you going to pay for it how are you going to you know if god puts that burden in your heart don't question the burden that god has put with these things that we as humans we worry about well how are we going to pay for it how are you going to take care of those kids how are you going to do this how are you going to do that because if we if we step out in faith if we step out in faith of the burden and the calling that the Lord has put on our life. He's going to guide our steps. He's going to provide what we need to make it happen. As long as we remember who's in charge, who can tell, who's, you know, who's going to get us through. Like I, on my own, could not have done it without God. Mm. Because there were times that he carried me when I couldn't carry myself. Come on. And, and, we have to remember that the world is always going to tell us no, because we're in this world, but we're not of it. Yep. Okay. The world is always going to be a pessimist. The world is infected with the lies of the enemy and, and the negativity and that you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. When God says you can, Mm. the world says you can't because their mind can't fathom the things that God can do. And when we step out in faith, knowing that our faith is in God and God can get us through things, it may not be exactly how we want it to be because how I exactly wanted it was to be was to go through the entire academy, break these barriers and do it in one stride and graduate with my initial class. But that's not what God had planned for me. Mm -hmm. And that's, I wouldn't change it for anything now. Back then I was like, all right, God, well, you know, this isn't how I planned it, but the way that God does things are never according to our plans. They're according to his plans. And he knows the desires of our heart. And he will make those things come to fruition in his time, in his purpose. And you have to stop listening to the world. Stop listening to people tell you you're too old. You you can't do it. You know, do you really want to make that risk? Do you really want to? That's a lot of work. Are you sure you want to do it? 
anything worth doing is worth mm-hmm. working for. It's going to be hard work, but it's going to be worth it 100%. Nothing good ever comes easy. Yeah. And so my advice is don't listen to the naysayers. Listen to your God. Listen to your heart. Listen to what he speaks to you. Dive into your word because he'll he'll speak to you. He'll speak to your heart. He'll, he'll help you grow and he'll help you guide you in, in this dream, this calling that you have in your life. And you have to be willing to drown out the voices of the world, the naysayers, the people who say that you can't, that say that you're not good enough because those are the people that are going to give the enemy the victory. Those are the people that are going to help you hand the victory over to the enemy and in your defeat. And and that calling, the thing is, the calling on your life is always going to be there. Yeah. It's just true. how soon you start doing it, how soon you start making those changes. And, you know, for some of us, our calling comes later in life. And for some of us, it comes sooner. But the point is, your calling is there. And the burden that you have and the things that you want to do, if God's put it on your heart, don't let anyone talk you out of it. Don't let anyone talk you out of it. Because then you don't want to wander your life wondering what if. What if. What if I had not listened to this person? And what if I had went forward? And you never, that sows seeds of doubt. And you never want to put doubt in your life of what you were supposed to do. Because you were listening to someone who may not even know what they want to do. But they feel the need to tell you what to do with your life. Because they don't know what's going on with theirs. Come on, sister, preach about it. We keep going. I know this will turn into an all-night prayer event. I know. Uh, but, no, I do want to – I do like what you had said a little bit earlier. And, you know, let me just say what the Bible states about it, too. It says, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. You know, so whatever it is that you're going through, you know, this story was a story like, man, I I just, I I lived it with her side by side, you know, and everything she was going through. And it was a sacrifice, but no matter what, God had seen her through, God had met her when she was weak, you know, when, when, when she needed to cry out mentally, physically, emotionally. God picked her up and kept her moving, you know, and as a, and as a husband for those men that are watching, like, you know, if you're going through stuff like this, we have to be a, a partner in prayer, a partner in support, a partner emotionally to make sure, you know, that, that you keep your other half going, keep them, keep them moving because you guys work as a unit and as a team. But Julie, this was such a great, great episode. It was a two-hour episode and two minutes and 29 seconds and still going. But this was one that I could not wait to get because, you know, just the miracle in itself and how you're walking in it from the miracle, from what God told you to who you are today, you know, a sheriff's deputy up in up in Summit County, you know, what, what a life you know, what a story that this was today. You know, I'm absolutely blessed to have you as my wife, as my friend, and now as a guest on Finding Faith uh, podcast, kicking off season two, because I believe there's a lot of people, you know, that 
that that want to do what they want to do but are stuck in what the world has labeled them they are you know but through your story i believe faith i believe encouragement i believe in inspiration will help guide them into the next steps of winning in life so julie thank you again for being a guest um it's time for dinner. It's a little late, so it's time to just start shutting everything down. <laughs> but you guys, thank you for tuning in. Um, we got so much planned out for this month. Uh, so many different stories, you know, similar, similar to Julie's. But, you know, again, when God does something in somebody's life, let him do it. Believe in it and walk in it. So according to your faith, you just walk in what you believe in. So, you guys, thank you again for tuning in for Finding Faith tonight. Go ahead, give us some emojis. Uh, love those emojis when you start putting them up. They make me smile because that means that God has touched you through it. You guys have a great day. Thank you, guys. Have a great night.